Welcome to this episode of the Scotland Future Series podcast from the University of St Andrews. I'm Mike Gettenby, the University's Deputy Legal Officer. At the outset, I'd like to flag that some of the topics that we're going to discuss today may not be suitable for younger listeners, so discretion is advised. The Scottish legal system has a number of unusual or unique features. Perhaps most well known is that three verdicts are available in criminal trials, guilty, not guilty and not proven. Controversy around the not proven verdict is not new. Nearly 200 years ago, Sir Walter Scott famously referred to it as that bastard verdict. But despite its long history, I can't give you a legal definition of not proven. There's no statutory, case law or even generally accepted definition, nor the difference between the not proven and not guilty verdicts. What I can say, though, is what the effect of a not proven verdict is. It's the same as not guilty, and an accused generally cannot be retried if charges are found to be not proven. There are, of course, arguments for and against retaining not proven. It's an important safeguard that reduces the risk of wrongful conviction. It demonstrates that there's a genuine doubt as to someone's guilt or innocence, and it's interwoven into our legal system. On the other hand, having two acquittal verdicts is illogical. It's incompatible with the presumption of innocence, leading to an acquitted accused being stigmatised. Victims feel that they get no closure, and the verdict allows jurors or judges to compromise and sit on the fence. Since 2018, Miss M, a former student at the university, has been working with Rape Crisis Scotland in a campaign to end the not proven verdict. I recently had the opportunity to discuss not proven and the campaign with Miss M and Sandy Brindley from Rape Crisis Scotland. Miss M, can I ask you to tell listeners about your story? Yeah, of course. So for me, um, it all started when I was a student studying at St Andrews. I was raped on a night out in Freshers Week um, in 2013. Um, I was raped by a stranger and shortly after some support from the university, um, I decided to go forward to the police um, in 2014. I sort of went through a difficult process of not understanding what would happen next. I had never been through a police investigation before. I'd never reported anything to the police. So for me, it was sort of the unknown. Um, I went through the journey of reporting and going through the process that the police needed uh, me to go through. That included things like a you know, a viper, so a visual identity parade to choose the person, select select him out of a sort of number of people, because again, this was a stranger that raped me. I, I didn't know who this person was. Um, the police process uh, was, I felt, was very thorough and, you know, they went through quite a protracted investigation is what I felt from even from the outside. Um, and then in 2014, they presented that to the Procurator Fiscal Service. It took some time. Um, for me, that was sort of the unknown. When it got to the Procurator Fiscal Service, my sort of support then stopped. Um, I had support from the university still, which, you know, the student services were really great. Um, and I was always thankful for their support from St Andrews. Um, but I used to have support from either a liaison officer through the police, but that completely stopped when I got to that stage of the Procurator Fiscal Service deciding um, if it would go forward to trial. Um, the case did go forward to trial, um, and that was in 2015. There was a rape trial that took place um, at Livingston High Court. For me, I'd never been in a courtroom um, apart from a familiarization visit that we did sort of a few days before um, and I felt the whole process was quite rushed initially it was going to be in Glasgow and then was brought through to Livingston because it now changed location I had to find new accommodation for me it was very stressful and distressing time for my family um, the university came through every day to support me as well which was which was great to have that continuity um, but in the actual courtroom I couldn't have a supporter with me 
because now it was a different court. They weren't prepared to have me there. Um, so they didn't have anyone available. So I was expected for the first time, sort of at the age of 21 by this this stage, um, to be coming and giving evidence on my own in this courtroom, you know, meters away from the man, the stranger that had raped me. Um, so for me, it was very traumatic. I think the actual court case itself was, you know, traumatic and still quite triggering process for me to go um, go back to a courtroom, which I have done since as part of my recovery. Um, and yeah, the trial was at the Livingston High Court. I was on the stand for about two days, was cross-examined for one of those days. And I think that's probably, yeah, I mean, I still have nightmares. You know, when I do get triggered, those are the nightmares I have. Not just the man that raped me, but actually the things that I was being questioned and asked in the cross-examination. You know, that was very traumatic for me. And then, yeah, I was told not to go into the courtroom because it gives the wrong impression to the jury. I didn't want a screen because those are one of the special measures, but I didn't want a screen. I wanted to face the man that raped me because I didn't feel that I'd done anything wrong. Um, and I waited outside the courtroom with my mum and asked my dad and brother to go into that courtroom because actually a lot of that happened, a lot of the things that happened that evening I wasn't actually aware of. And that was the sort of first time that I would get to know some of the knowledge of what happened to me on that evening. And yeah, I think for me, we were literally waiting to see what would happen. Um, we didn't know which date the, the court would finish until they finished all the evidence. Um, and for me, there was concerns when people I thought would give evidence didn't turn up and weren't actually giving evidence. One was my surgeon, um, was never asked to give evidence at the high court. Um, yeah, so the, the trial ended and they didn't take much time to deliberate. Um, and at that point, they came back with a verdict of not proven. Um, and the man that I reported to raped me um, was acquitted and went home back down to Manchester. And were you aware beforehand that there was these potential three outcomes, including not proven? Was that something you were ready for and you'd be able to understand whenever the verdict was given? Well, when they called me, I was walking along the scores, actually, in St Andrews, and they, they called me to say that the the jury had decided um, the decision, they'd, the outcome was the verdict had not proven. And the lady from witness care then said that that means that they haven't got enough evidence to convict Stephen Coxon, but actually they believe you. So they believe what you're saying, but they just have not, haven't got enough evidence to send them to prison. So for me, I, w I was confused. Um, I think it had been discussed about this not proven verdict, but this again was a different version of what initially I'd been told, whether it was from Police Scotland or from the Procurator Fiscal Service or through people I'd met along the journey. Um, everyone seemed to have a differing opinion of what this verdict meant. So for me, I was confused. You know, I was then having to try and relay this information to my family and my friends. You know, it was near to exam times in St Andrews. A lot of the witnesses were students as well, and they had to give time up out of their sort of studying. And I'm trying to explain this to them now that it was a not proven and sort of what that meant. I was confused myself. So you're then left in a position where not only are you telling people what the outcome was, but then having to interpret that for them. But there's, as I mentioned in the introduction, there is no definition. There's not something you can point to that says this is what it means in the same way there would be for guilty or not guilty. Yeah, you know, I was having my family Google what not proven meant. Then I was trying to explain that, you know, they said that it's just not enough evidence to send them to prison, but they believe me. But then my brother would be saying, well, actually, that's not what it says online. And then I'd have people that were supporting me either from the university or 
um, from rape crisis that had different view on what not proven meant. But each person just kept saying, well, it's over now, it's finished. You just need to go back to the person you were. You need to keep going with your life and move on. And I kept saying to them, I can't move on. How can you move on when actually they've given me a verdict that I've waited three years for? And actually this verdict is supposed to be my future now. Like I'm supposed to live a life with a not proven verdict. What does that mean? For me at that stage, this investigation, this case was more important than anything. And unfortunately, I was focusing all my energy onto something that was taking up my life. It was consuming my life. It was so traumatic to go through. I was trying to be strong and not have to involve my family or friends too much in the process of what I was going through. But that felt quite a lonely place. I was now on my own. If I didn't have the support of the university or rape crisis, I would be trying to navigate a system that's, you know, not set up to support victims of rape like I was going through that journey. And I know this might sound a strange question, would a not guilty verdict have given you more closure than not proven? I would have preferred a not guilty verdict than a not proven. And I think the people that sit and listen or watch this and are quite shocked by what I've said is exactly the people that I then, later down the line, when I tried to highlight the issues of not proven, you know, that campaign was what that was focusing on. Because actually, to live a life with a not proven verdict, it doesn't feel like there's an ending you know, we go through a process to have an end. You know, you go through a degree to graduate. I go through a criminal pr process to have an ending. But what was the point if I'm given a not proven verdict? I can't even discuss it with people because they didn't understand. My parents and my family felt it too traumatic to even, you know, comprehend what this meant and the fact that this was another acquittal verdict. You know, people felt it was unfair that they were a witness in this case, but didn't understand that this could be the outcome. And I felt unsafe. You know, there was already complications I was having between the accused and his friends. I felt unsafe now in a town where a not proven verdict to me felt that there was no ending. And actually, the jury are there to make a choice. And I think, you know, I spent three years. They've had a week of they've had a week of this journey where I've consumed this for a whole three years. One thing I asked them to do, and the courts asked them to do, is make a decision. And I actually think that a not proven verdict is a cop-out. They didn't have to make a decision. And I'm sorry that they had to sit through traumatic information. There was a jury member that was quite tearful and often would get upset and we'd have to either stop the trial or let her have a break. But, you know, this was my life. There was me and another person involved in this and I don't think a not proven verdict gave either of us a sense of closure. So what did you do next, given your lack of closure from the criminal justice system? So for me, like I said, everyone, you know, told me to move on with my life. Um, I was still studying at St Andrews at the time. Um, and for me, it wasn't really, I didn't, fe I didn't feel that actually there was an ending to that criminal process. Um, despite my sort of friends and family's views, I wanted to do something that actually I could try and achieve that sort of closure. Um, initially it was about feeling safe in St Andrews so it was about getting an order on one of the accused friends so they couldn't have contact within a certain distance of me um, or come to my property anymore and things like that so for me that started that enabled me to feel safe in the town and I thought you know I even said to someone at one stage like how crazy is it that I have an order against the friend of the man that raped me but not the man that raped me and that's when I started looking into other options what could I do um, and I spoke to various solicitors um, and explained that, you know, the position I was in, but also that I felt there were things that were wrong in the criminal trial. And I mentioned about sitting outside the court that my surgeon never, surgeon never came to give evidence. And in a criminal trial, you've got beyond reasonable doubt. You know, that's what they have to sort of, 
you know, be sure of a jury. Um, and I wanted to see, was there anything else I could do um, with in the situation? So after speaking to solicitors, um, with the support of Rate Crisis Scotland and still had the support of the university, I decided that I would try and do the first civil rape case following a criminal trial um, in Scotland. And that was it really, sort of went from there and yeah, it took quite a long time to go through that process. I graduated in between that time, which I was glad to, glad to sort of get to that ending. Um, and then yeah, it was the civil case that came sort of next in 2018. And I would imagine that's a very different process to go through than the criminal justice system, given that you're instigating a civil case, you're not relying on procurator fiscal, you're you're the one who um, is engaging lawyers, you're the one who's instructing counsel or whatever. You're, you're driving that a lot more. Did that give you a better feeling of control? Yeah, and I think for me, the, the criminal process made me worse. It later on when they diagnosed me with quite complex PTSD part of that was this lack of agency that I had through the criminal process that I was a witness to my own crime and there's only two people in that room but yet I'm now becoming a witness to this where the accused is never seen as that you know they're a part of the process they've got their own team legal team so for me it was a struggle sometimes witnesses would have more information about my own investigation bearing in mind that this was consuming my whole life that was quite difficult to cope with Whereas if we flip that on the side, when I went through the criminal, uh, when I went through the civil process, sorry, the civil process was actually supportive and helpful to my recovery, um, being able to go through the evidence. Whereas before I was sitting outside that courtroom, didn't know what was happening until my brother would have to give me these harrowing details of what happened to me on the night that I was raped that I wasn't aware of. Um, to this civil case where actually I was reviewing the evidence, I was going through it, I was meeting with the solicitor. It wasn't the case of turning up to... Um, a court and then it was changed a few days later they understood that actually this is quite a traumatic thing and uh you know we need to have support in place and that was all prepared um i felt that it was all the evidence was reviewed um i felt that there was more evidence in a civil case that has is on a balance of probabilities rather than beyond reasonable doubt and actually we had more evidence we had my surgeon that came to get evidence that could never be that was never included in the criminal trial so for me, it was worrying that as that student sitting outside that criminal trial, I have all my hope in a system that's behind those doors, that, that courtroom, where I'm sitting waiting for my surgeon to come and give evidence or you know someone else that was a key witness. And actually, I have no control over what happened. I was a teenager at the time. My family had never been through a court case. I didn't know what anything was. I'd had my whole trust in this, in this you know, organization that was doing this. But in the civil case, I actually was involved we had more evidence, not just people coming to give evidence, but actually things that had been overlooked in the criminal trial. Um, and for me, when that civil case was over, I was sure that whatever happened now, that the evidence had been reviewed, that everything that should have been presented was, and I felt that I had a fair case. So for me, it was, you know, I talked quite a lot about legal representation. That was you know, everything to me, actually having that person in my corner that I could actually ask them what does this mean and explain the different outcomes of a civil case as well uh, we also discussed you know QC at the time which would be a KC now who would be that person that presents this in court and I actually got to meet them beforehand got to choose who I wanted go through that evidence with them and they knew who I was I wasn't just this number that they're reading a file and then they're presenting my case in court they knew who I was and they knew you know 
did I have the right support, which I think, you know, meant a huge amount to me. Okay, thank you very much. Sandy, very personal experiences from Miss M. Um, could, could I ask, first of all, who are Rape Crisis Scotland? What do you do? And then it would be really interesting for your views on how um, sexual offences are dealt with in Scottish criminal justice system, in particular, what challenges not proven gives whenever you're supporting uh, complainers or victims? So Rape Crisis Scotland is a national charity which provides support to anyone who's experienced sexual violence, no matter when or how it happened. We run a national helpline for anyone in Scotland affected by sexual violence, and we have 17 local rape crisis services delivering <clears throat> ongoing services to survivors. Um, we run a national advocacy project, which is a dedicated project that supports people through the justice process because we know what a hard process it can be to yeah. navigate. So we've advocacy workers that can support people from start to finish, whatever that might be. And part, part of the reason we set up this project was because of the difficulties of the legal system. And I, I think Miss M has spoken really eloquently just about what some of those challenges are of the legal process in Scotland, and particularly about being a witness to your own crime and how little agency that means you can feel during the process. Yeah. So there are a number of issues that we campaign on as an organisation, so as well as supporting survivors, we aim to improve society's response to sexual crime, and that includes improving justice responses to sexual crime. So what we know is that rape has got the lowest conviction rate of any crime type in Scotland. Most cases never make it to court. Mm -hmm. Of those that do, <clears throat> only just over half result in a conviction and disproportionately not proven as used in rape cases, but 58% of acquittals in rape cases are not proven rather than not guilty. And just to, I really want to pay tribute to Miss M and the work that she's done with us in raising awareness about the impact of the not proven verdict. I, I think there are many, many reasons why the conviction rate is so low in rape cases and why complainers' experience is so poor. And I, I don't think not proven is the only source of those problems, but I think it definitely plays a part. And our, our, our worry really is about combined with jury attitudes. There's, there's been a whole number of um, jury research studies that look at jury deliberating and decisions that suggest that juries in rape cases are not always making decisions based on the evidence. They're making yeah. decisions based on perceptions and often misunderstandings about the reality of rape and how somebody may react. And our concern is that those jury attitudes combined with the existence of the not proven verdict are leading to guilty men walking free from our courts in Scotland. We're focusing on not proven today. Um, how difficult is it whenever you're counselling, advising a victim that when something gets to court, Yes, there's always a chance it could somebody could be found not guilty, but there's actually this third verdict, which is, well, as we've talked about, pretty unusual, that is available to a judge or a jury. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's very unusual. We're the only country that I, I'm aware of that has two acquittal verdicts. And I, I, I think the difficult is how to explain this to, yeah. to somebody who's about to go through the process or who has just received an opera verdict, because there is no definition of not proven. I mean, the, the closest I've heard anyone come to a definition 
is the suggestion that it's a, it's a question of emphasis about whether or not the jury used not proven or not, not guilty. And I, I just think that's a nonsense. Like you, you cannot explain a legal term in such impre- in an imprecise way. So I think the lack of a definition is, is really, really difficult for people yeah. to understand. And I, I think as Miss M has said, but also as many other rape survivors have, have said to me, it's like it doesn't feel like an end. Yeah. Someone, another survivor has, has said it feels like a comma instead of a, a full stop. And I think that is so difficult for people to come to terms with. And also just the lack of information about why, I think, is really, really difficult. So a rape complainer has gone through this process, which is often very, very difficult. They've given evidence, been cross-examined. They get an all-proven verdict with no explanation as to why the jury arrived at that verdict. I think that lack of explanation makes it really, really hard for people to come to terms with what's happened and really to come to terms with not getting justice. And I think that really is what Miss M has described so eloquently, is just it's very hard to reconcile yourself to not getting justice. And it seems, given the matters we're dealing with and given if you have a lay jury, which rightly has got no legal background, if they are coming and saying to a judge in a case, well, what does not proven mean? Judges not only not being able to tell them what it means, but not even being allowed to formulate what that means or to give an opinion. It seems illogical given the you know the outcome that a not proven verdict can have. Um, after your civil case in 2018, um, again, what were your next steps? Was it at that point that you that you started to work on the campaign to end Not Proven? Yeah, so the civil case, uh, the judgment came out quite a few months after the the civil case concluded, which for me was actually, I felt the judgment was actually helpful to me because I understood the reason the decision was made rather than obviously when a jury comes back with a verdict, it's you get the outcome and that's it. Um, and yeah, after the civil case, I actually had quite a few people that had picked up on the civil case that got quite a lot of media attention that came to me and said, do you not think that the failings from your criminal case that you should try and, you know, highlight that or do something with that? Because, you know, what you went through and the evidence that you feel that you missed, do you not think that that should be reviewed or looked at? Um, and quite a few people that I spoke to, um, varying backgrounds throughout, you know, throughout this, that they'd seen uh, the civil case or supported the civil case, they sort of asked if that's something that I would want to do. And by that stage for me, the civil case was everything I needed. Um, I had the closure. I felt I had justice. You know, the judgment from the from Sheriff Weir, you know, explained the reasons that he decided that, yes, um, I was successful, that Stephen Coxon had raped me, um, went through that information, especially with all the evidence from the people that were missed out of the first criminal trial. And um, for me, that was it. I mean, my family were, you know, supportive all the way through, but I felt as well a sense of my whole family felt that we could all sort of breathe now, that it was over. Like I didn't need to do any more and I didn't want to go back over my own case because that was about one individual. So now I wanted to focus my time. You know, it was quite a lot of my own time doing a civil case. I wanted to focus that energy I now had into helping other people in my situation. Um, you know, I felt like a closure and justice from Stephen Coxon, but there were thousands of women in Scotland that didn't have their own closure and weren't getting justice. And I wanted to do something 
to help the system and help other people in that system. Um, and that's when I decided um, about four weeks after my judgment from the civil case, um, I decided that I'd like to highlight something for me that was a problem, not just in my own personal views, but communication with others that were supporting me and getting that two-way support. None of us understood the not proven verdict. And that's when I approached Sandy Brindley, um, Rape Crisis Scotland and, the, and her team and said, this is something I'd really like to do. Will you support me? Because it's a huge project, but I know it's not going to solve everything. But actually for survivors like myself, I felt I never got that closure and it's something that I'd like to help other people with. And that's how the End Not Proven campaign really, how that sort of started and how the journey began. It's 2018, what, how did you go about starting a campaign? Tell us a bit about the history to it and where it's taken you to. I think the collaboration was really, really important because I, I think you can give lots of statistics to people yeah. about rape being, not proven, being disproportionately used in rape cases, but I think it's people's stories that really bring home the impact of this verdict and why there's a need for change. And I, I think the collaboration between Rape Crisis Scotland and Miss M worked really well. Yeah. So we <clears throat> set up a page on our website about the campaign, giving background information. We set up a dedicated email address for people to email us with their experience. So we had a, a, a number of survivors contact us to see how the verdict had felt for them. But we also had some people who had sat in juries, got in touch anonymously just to see re really how appalled they were at what had happened during the, the jury deliberations yeah. and the cases they were involved in and how, how um, they ended up going for a not proven verdict. So I thought that was really important to get a range of views and particularly a range of survivors' views yeah. that we then with permission used quotes from survivors and others on our website. Um, myself and Miss M also met up with um, every justice spokesperson for um, every party in the Scottish Parliament. We also met up with, I think it was Hamza Yusuf, was the Secretary for Justice at that time, isn't yeah, that right? Yeah, And when you asked um, the then Cabinet Secretary for Justice, now First Minister, about Not Proven, was he able to shed any light on what he thought it meant? Yes, yeah, so for me, so... That was one of the few meetings, actually, Sandy had another uh, commitment. So I went along with one of my solicitors from the Scottish Women's Rights Centre who took my civil case. Um, and we went along to meet with the Cabinet Secretary of Justice. And I explained, you know, my experiences, how I, what I felt about the not proven. And I think it was one of our first meetings with Humza Yusuf at the time. And he, you know, I asked him, all these different organisations say this, this is what the law says about not proven, you know, what does it actually mean? And he actually said that he would comment and say that there is actual, there is no definition of not proven set in stone. So for me, that sort of spoke volumes, really. Um, I know this campaign was to end the not proven verdict, but the other side of this campaign that would mean that we were always going to achieve something and that it would be something useful of my time and great crisis Scotland's time was actually that, if we can't end not proven, you know, we'll want to highlight that and try and sort of remove the the use of this uh, verdict. But actually, another part of it was making people aware. So actually, you know, members of the public that might be on jury, uh, might be a jury member. You know, we were on quite a few of the sort of news channels. We discussed it in um, radio shows as well. We're also meeting with people from different parts of society um, that might not watch the news and actually sort of the coverage that they were able to do with us with events that we were doing. Um, you know, it was 
about bringing people together as well. So, you know, people that didn't feel that they had that sense of closure from this verdict actually coming together with people with the same, you know, sort of the same feelings as them actually was was quite helpful and I've met some amazing people throughout this campaign that I've kept in touch with now and are very supportive um, of this survivors themselves you know rape complainants um, that I would never have met if it wasn't through this campaign and for me it was about highlighting that if we're using this let's understand what it means don't don't just assume that you're giving something back to the victim um, that you think that we're gonna feel that we're more believed actually understand that that's not how we feel and I you know, a large proportion of us rather don't feel that um, and really, you know, what that means. And then, of course, the other side of it was then meeting meeting with politicians, going through the uh, justice committee, doing events. And then we did a few presentations with the with Scottish Parliament as well to really highlight, you know, how damaging this verdict is. And you see there's been a couple of well, consultations and academic pieces since 2018, particularly led by... Uh, Professor James Chalmers and Professor Fiona Leverick at Glasgow University, where they have done, like you said, mock jury work. They have interviewed juries. And at the most basic level, it's quite astonishing when you read the responses and see the confusion around not proven. Even if what your campaign done is is highlight that, it, it does take you back that whenever people are being asked to make such big decisions that have such big impacts on people's lives... They don't even know what they're deciding. Uh, absolutely. I, mean, I, I think the research by um, James Chalmers and Fiona Leverick and Vanessa Monroe was really important. And I, I think what that did do was demonstrate that people don't understand yeah. what the not, pro not proven verdict is and what it means. And I, th I think if we're going to continue to use juries and rape trials, which I, I, I definitely have quite, quite significant concerns about, but if we are going to continue using juries and rape trials, we need to ensure that there's a basic level of information and understanding mm. about key legal concepts. It's entirely unreasonable, in my view, to expect juries to come to a decision um, in a rape trial without an explanation of when they should use not proven yeah. and when they should use not guilty. And in particular, in Scotland, one of our other oddities or unique features is rules around corroborative evidence and the confusion between, well, is this a lack of corroborative evidence that's leading to a not uh, to a not proven verdict, or what the outcome of that is. You know, some some of the reading it's clear. Well, thought by not proven, it was effectively a mistrial. It would start again. It's not. It is, as one person put it, there's two red lights and one green light in terms of in terms of verdicts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think there's need for for quite significant reform of how rape is treated within the justice system. And my my, my view is that we should consider not using juries in rape trials. There's just such significant evidence now about the impact of rape myths in jury decision-making. There was, there was Lady Dorian, who's the Lord Justice Clark, the second most senior judge in Scotland, did a really wide-ranging review of how sexual offences are treated in Scotland. One of her recommendations is, like, we do a judge-led pilot, so pilot um, uh, rape trials using a judge as the decision-maker rather than a jury. And there was one judge quoted in um, her report, and I, I thought his words were really stark, where he, he said he regularly sees cases, often result in a proven verdict, where the decision of the jury is inexplicable in the face of the evidence. Yeah. And I, I think from that, it is really clear that our justice system is failing to protect society by convicting men who are clearly guilty, but is also failing to provide any sense of justice to women reporting rape. It's worth pointing out, though, 
not proven is also available to judges um, sitting without juries. And there are times when a judge will give a not proven verdict. So this is not just you know a plague on juries or a problem with juries. I wonder how many of those judges would be able to explain why they gave a not proven verdict uh, instead of a not guilty verdict. And actually, because whenever a not proven or a not guilty verdict is given, there's no explanation. There's no way for us to understand, standing back from a judge or a jury, why a decision was made either way. So thank you very much for that, sharing both of your experiences. I suppose it brings us to where we are now. Um, following the consultation exercises and the other pieces of research that we mentioned, the then First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced in September 22 that the Scottish Government's programme for the upcoming year would include a criminal justice bill which would have measures to abolish the not proven verdict. That bill has now been introduced into the Scottish Parliament. Can I ask what both of your reactions are? I think this is an incredibly important bill that could transform justice responses to sexual crime. And I think it's really important to pay tribute to everybody that made it happen, from survivors like Miss Aim and lots of other survivors who've been involved in campaigning to improve justice responses, but also, like going back to Lady Doreen's review, which it's based on, and the former First Minister who played such an important role. I think now, really, the onus is on politicians within the Scottish Parliament to, to see this through and make sure we have legislation that fundamentally transforms justice responses to rape and enables people in Scotland who've been raped to actually get justice. I know my profession is one that doesn't like change, but it is quite stark that whenever you read the statistics, such as, you know, the, the whenever the consultation was published on and uh, uh, whenever the consultation was published and responses were invited, 62% of the 194 responses su supported scrapping not proven it, it, there is a general groundswell of opinion in favour of that happening miss em what are your thoughts now that culmination of five years work for you yeah i think i think it's been a long journey um but i think and i hope that you know once i was a victim going through the courts where i didn't feel that my voice was being heard that i hope that this campaign you know, that wasn't started by us initially. You know, there was also Joe Duffy that I've spent a lot of time with and spoken to um, his family campaign for the removal of Not Proven. Um, I just hope that everyone else that's been involved in this in this journey um, and supported the Not Proven campaign, especially rape victims, um, that we can see it's disproportionately used, feels in some way that their voice has been heard, that the Scottish government have listened to, you know, our views and opinions. There's been, you know, some great, evidence-based research and lots of other reasons that this is where we are uh, not just sort of our campaign but it is great to see that something that we find so difficult at the end of a trial that's so traumatic um, that we do feel our voice is being heard and that we do have a place um, you know with our lived experience to come into play to make you know next step next you know decisions for the next stage. Thank you because it's clear this is not one magical solution this is a, a piece of an overall set of solutions that need to be put in place but you must feel do you feel proud do you feel i presume you don't feel your work is done no i i feel proud of of miss aim and all the other survivors who have spoken out and who have played such a a key role in making this happen i i think there is a lot in this bill to be really proud of and that could genuinely transform 
women's experience, people's experience of the, the justice process. And I, I think hopefully it's something that Scotland can be proud of and we can be proud of our parliament, if our, if our parliament really steps up and yeah. passes this bill. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us, Miss M. Thank you very much for listening or viewing this podcast. Um, if you have been affected by any of the issues that we've discussed, uh, I would direct you towards the Rape Crisis Scotland website and all of the great work that they've been doing and campaigns. There's more information about the campaigns they're running, the advocacy work they're doing and the support they're able to provide. Thank you very much to both of my guests today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.